This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today I'm visiting with author Frederick McClendon. He's written a book titled Crooked. It's the story of a private investigator's battle to quit smoking cold turkey, which causes him to have dreams so terrifying. Sleep is the one thing he fears most until he receives a call that submerges him into an underworld so corrupt when a notable mob boss is murdered. Kelly must find out why. Welcome, Frederick. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Doing well, sir. This is a fascinating idea, most unusual plot that the center of this story seems to be smoking or non-smoking. Is that, am I misunderstanding that? No, no, that is correct. Um, it, it, the plot comes from my own challenges when, you know, I made a promise to my daughter, uh, I would say 21 years ago, to stop smoking, and I did it cold turkey. And within stopping, I began having dreams, cold sweats, waking up with my fingers to my mouth. But the dreams were the hardest part of it, I would say, the dreams, because they, you know, I dreamt about crazy packs of cigarettes that chased me, and, you know, they just had teeth that, you know, just looking at something would terrify you, they did. You know, so I put that into the plot of a detective, you know, and... It, it, it submerged a very, very great novel. This is not the first novel you've written. You also wrote one while you were still a student in, was it high school or junior high? Well, it was junior high school, which I didn't finish. It was called Comrade. And hopefully one day I may go back to it. But, yeah, the first novel I wrote, I was 14. But I just never finished it, you know, hearing different stories that I wasn't good enough and how ugly I was and, you know, I was basically bullied as a child, and, you know, that's why I pretty much, I'm going to do something now to to help children and people who are bullied, because it's not a very good feeling, and it took away a whole lot from me as a child, because I didn't have that belief in myself, you know, I was very shy and intimidated, and, you know, it, it it just caused something within me where I did really couldn't believe in myself as a person. And you've been able to overcome that from another professor or teacher that was helping you learn the techniques of writing. Um. Yes, yes. I went to, well, I enrolled in an online school called Stratford Institute. And up to that point, I really never let anyone read anything that I wrote, not the poetry, not the writings, anything. And, um, well, except my wife. And she always told me it was good, but that was, you know, love. You know, your wife is going to tell you, yeah, you're the greatest. But when I um, enrolled in school, we had to submit a short story. And I was writing a book called Three Dog Nights, which I'm trying to finish now. And I didn't want to submit a short story from Three Dog Nights, so I came up with this plot. And I sent it in, and she told me how good it was, you know, and she told me, 
And it originally, you know, was only 10 pages. You know, it was basically meant only to be 10 pages. And she praised it and told me how good it was and that I needed to lengthen it and, you know, make a novel, of which I did. And, you know, this was the birth of Bryant Kelly, you know. Yes. And and Brian Kelly is your is your main character in this. Yes, he's the main character, the one who's going through the smoking withdrawals and the bad dreams, the crooked cops, the mob, the you know, yes. That and, was the birth of Brian Kelly. And he's the PI. Yes, he's the PI. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about this this novel. You have 168 pages. How much action is included in this book? Um, well, everything is action if you want to look at it like that. The bad dreams are action. You know, his relationship with Julie is a, is action because she's a piece of work within herself. You know, um, James Turner, he's the one who's um, being framed for murder, who Kelly has to, you know, somehow clear of being put to jail for the rest of his life. You know, then there's the crooked cops who he has to contend with. You know, it's just a whole sequence of nonstop just action straight through. And this book is—is is it a book that would appeal to a lot of people? Is there an, an age limit, or would everyone love this book? Um. Well, I would say basically from 18 on up. But you know, I mean, within my own inhibitions, I stopped cursing. Ooh, I gotta say, I said my last curse word nine years ago, and for me that was the hardest part of writing this book because I really didn't want to add cursing to their dialect and you know the raunchiness to the dialect. So basically, this book can be read by anyone from eight to eighty, but you know, in a in an experience level of 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 reading and personality, I would say from eight to. I mean, from 18 to maybe 80. Well, let me be uh, one to congratulate you on your choices of, of uh, writing a novel that can be read by most people without the yeah, foul yeah, language yeah. in it. I appreciate that personally. And I know there are a lot of books out there that that's how they survive is by trying to um, outshock the last author, and I'm glad you didn't do yeah. that. Thank you again for doing that. Yeah. No, it's my pleasure because I, I it, it hurt me putting the two or three curse words that I had to put. But for the most part, I tried to, the best of my ability, to, to calm down on the, the use of foul language, because I don't believe in using foul language myself. So that was one of the hardest parts of writing this book. Well, congratulations again. Describe the process of writing your book. How did this story come together? Well, um, as I said, I um, stopped smoking several years ago. And I needed something to, as a catch. So when my teacher praised, you know, when my teacher asked me to write the short story, you know, it just came to me. And I decided to use the smoking and build the character around it instead of building the character and using the smoking around him. So once I came up with the, the plot of, you know, the, 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 the inhibitions of my own dreams, I chose Kelly, which I could have used the bus operator because I was a bus operator for 15 years, but then I thought maybe a detective or a private investigator would be more appealing to 
an average crowd. And then I put the storyline behind, you know, a, a, a batch of money that everybody is looking for. But then there's going to be a twist in book number two, which I really can't give away now. But there's a, a twist of what everybody is really looking for. You've lined up on the back of your book, on the flyleaf, about seven or eight book titles. Are they all going to include Private Investigator Kelly? No, no. The only two, the, the second book, which is going to be called Another Crooked Investigation, that is going to be, you know, the final I can't say the final one because as yet I don't know what I'm going to do, maybe a third or fourth. But no, that's the only other book that really involves Brian Kelly. The second book, uh, which is Three Dog Nights, is about a jazz musician. Hmm. And she takes a turn for, you know, the worst in her dealings. Then the other one, which is Spy Kill, that is like espionage, you know. Then Step is about a father who's raising two, well, stepchild and his own child after the tragic loss of his wife, you know, so on and so forth. But no, Brian Kelly only lives in two books as of yet. As of this moment. Yes. You have also embarked on the career of being an inventor. You also have a dedication to this book, which the listeners may find of interest. Explain um, that to yes. us. I um, dedicated this book to my son-in-law. His name was Guy Simpson. And he was tragically gunned down while sitting in his friend's car. Um, he was shot six times through the back as, you know, this person put his fingers in the back window and just shot through the back seat. Hmm. And, you know, it was a tragic loss. We all, you know, we miss him dearly. So, you know, my first book I really wanted to dedicate to him, you know, in hopes that, you know, he can live through my book. But, no, it's not about him, but it's just dedicated to him. And how long did it take you to put this book together? Uh, I've been writing this book for the best part of three years, on and off with the, you know, tragedies in life and, the, you know, the challenges. It took me about three years to, to you know put everything together yes research writing yes and to introduce us to someone how would you do that since you're a new writer tell us how we would get interested in this book tell me as a as a person that has never read anything you've written yes well i would i would um pretty much approach you and greet myself as fred mcclendon and explain that i've just written my first novel it's about a young man who's framed of a murder of a of a detective who was investigating a mob boss in a restaurant. Now, within, you know, him investigating, he found that there was a, a, a hidden stash of money, which he reported to his superiors. And the crooked cops came after this money. And, you know, they framed him, James Turner, for the murder of the detective, and they kidnapped the mob boss who was a restaurant owner and tried to get this money out of him and it takes a lot of different twists and turns which i really can't you know you'd have to really read the book in order to you know get into the or grasp the concept but it's basically about a mob boss who was who was you know hiding money and you know they came after him for this money 
and your creative energy has come to the surface, you're also wanting to get involved perhaps in movies and producing. Is that also correct? Yes. Yes. My next plan is to go back to school for directing. And actually, I have uh, an event coming up on uh, October 25th and 26th called Pitch Fest. And I'm going to pitch my book to seven directors, producers, and screenwriters in hopes that, you know, they like it enough to make a movie out of it. I'm familiar with Pitch Fest. That's, that's a great entree to get your book out there and get your plot uh, maybe discovered. Yes, I'm very nervous. I'm trying to really get my pitch together, you know, get it to the point where I can make them as interested in it as I did, you know, you and other people. And that this is a chance of a lifetime. Well, if this was picked up by a producer, what scene in this particular book stands out to you and you think would stand out to them? Um, I would say pretty much to the conclusion. You know, um, Kelly confronts one of the crooked cops in an airport, and he put together a little surprise for him when he finds this money. And the crooked cop tries to run. He runs to the airport in hopes of getting away. And Kelly tracks him to the airport, and a standoff ensues. And I can't tell you exactly how this all unfolds, but within the standoff, the crooked cop gets a very, very big surprise. Mm -hmm. And he's captured, and of course he offers to just give away everybody who was involved in this crooked plot and you know they end up killing him from somewhere which i i left a cliffhanger for the second book but that was sneaky murdered. that was sneaky exactly but he's murdered <laughs> and in the second book all of that is going to unfold and you'll find out who was the murderers who was really involved and what were they really really after well, that sounds exciting. Any key messages or underlying themes in your book? Well, the key, uh, the messages that I really want to get across in this book is, you know, believe in yourself. Because when I stopped smoking, it wasn't an easy thing. You know, but due to a promise that I made to my daughters, and I always tried. I raised two daughters by myself, you know, from the age of 20 all the way up until I got married. And this, the, when I stopped smoking, it wasn't easy. It was one of the hardest things that I could honestly say I did in my life. But not wanting to break the promise to her, I could honestly say I have 21 years and counting of a smoke-free lungs and filled smoke-free life. <clears throat> and I would tell them honestly, just have faith in yourself, whether you're bullied, whether you're trying to stop smoking, whether you're the least popular person in a crowd of, you know, your peers who who intimidate you, have faith in yourself because you never know what your actions would bring for yourself. You know, if you want to write, write. If you want to play basketball, play basketball. But don't let anyone tell you that these are things that you can't do because I was supposed to write my book, who, over 40 years ago. But listening to the negativity, you know, I allowed them to break me down, and, you know, they stopped me from doing what I really loved. 
Now, Fred, you're also an inventor. Tell me about the latest project you've been involved in. Um, yes, John. Um, I invented uh, it's a compact tabletop device which creates soap out of broken chars of soap that you would ordinarily throw away. One chamber, you put the soap in the top chamber, and it, it melts the soap and then remolds it. And I've created different molds where you could make, like, heart-shaped soap, you could make star-shaped, any, any molds of soap that you wish. Then there's a second chamber, which it melts the soap down into liquid soap. You know, it's equal-friendly, where you no longer have to throw the soap away and drain up your, 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 I mean, clog up your drains and garbage cans and landfills with all of this soap. And now you just re redo your soap as you use it. Is this currently available? As of yet, no. We're looking for a manufacturer now to, you know, to license it, and then, you know, pretty much in a year or two, hopefully, it will hit the market. And is there a name for this invention yet? Well, yes, I, I called it Soap Magic, but we're going to have to change it because there is a product already called Soap Magic. So we're working on renaming it, maybe the Rejuvenator or, you know, some old catchy name. But we're looking to to change the name because there is a product already called Soap Magic, and we can't use it. Oh, fascinating. Well, best of luck with that. Yes, thank you, Jay. You know, I'm just trying to put the wheels in motion. You know, what God gave me, I'm trying to, you know, not let it waste. Fabulous. Congratulations on this book, and we look forward to the next one in the series. This book, titled Crooked, the author, Frederick McClendon. Thank you, Frederick, for joining us today. Hey, thank you very much, Jay. And how do we get copies of this book? Uh, well, there's a couple of sites. You can go to the mother site, which is authorhouse.com. You can go to amazon.com. You can go to barnesandnoble.com or kobo.com, K-O-B-O, and you can download the ebook from Kobo or any of the other sites. And you also have a Facebook page? Yes, it's uh, Fred McClendon Facebook. That's how you'd find me on Facebook, put in Fred McClendon. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jay, and you have a great day. I enjoyed this so much. Thank you, sir. For Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. 
This is J. Douglas Barker. I have the honor of visiting with author James Stanley Barlow and discussing his book titled Pastor, a Fictional Reminiscence with Conversations on Religion and Society. Welcome, James. Thank you, Jay. Nice to meet you. Pleasure to talk with you. Tell me about your book. You were a pastor, an actual pastor of a church at one point. Is that, uh, am I understanding your history? Way back when, I spent most of my life in academe teaching the history of religions and comparative religion at Columbia and then philosophy in the City University of New York, where I coordinated the philosophy program for the College of Staten Island. And uh, we lived in New Jersey for 43 years when I worked at both those places in succession. And then we, uh, I have retired, I must say, from teaching, though I'm a very young man. Well, prior to that, you were also... Born in 24. 24. <laughs> you don't, you, I will say your voice does not give that away, but I did Thank look you. at your bio and discovered you also had served in World War II. Is that also yes. correct? I was an aerial navigator with the Air Force. Amazing. And this book, how does it? how is it that you came to uh, put this book together? What was your motivation for doing so? Well, I uh, spent several years in the Presbyterian ministry. I got a... D.D. from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1950, and I uh, also got a fellowship, and I later got a Ph.D., and then went into academe, but I had about 16 years or so of the parish work and campus ministry, and for some reason, I, I keep thinking I want to say something about that and about the church, and so I've written notes over the past six years, and then I put it all together in a novel and a fictional parish into which is poured a lot of my experience from various uh, pastorates and positions across the country, and even a little bit in Scotland. Amazing. And so it's uh, it's one fictional parish that has to hold a lot of material <laughs> based on fact, but there's some funny stories, and there's some very serious stories, and an ongoing debate or conversation between the protagonist, the minister who wants to be a conscientious and effective one, and his skeptical roommate, university roommate, who stays with him as a best friend, but is a kind of atheist, talks of himself as an atheist. And so the uh, story, while a story of parish life, very down to earth, and warts and all, I might say, Mm -hmm. does include this ongoing conversation about the place of religion and society from the perspective of a professional minister in the church, and his good friend who has nothing to do with the church, but nevertheless has what the protagonist, the minister, considers Christian values. So what about a good person whom the minister feels is really a better guy than he is, who doesn't use the same kind of language, church language, religious mm-hmm. language? And where is this Where is this setting? Where is this take in, place? Uh, it's, I put it in Birmingham, because I had a experience in Birmingham in the early 50s in Presbyterian churches in two different places, Decatur and Birmingham. But I pour all this into a fictional parish in Birmingham. I just seem to be possessed to do that. I mean, the the statement just sort of built itself as it went along. 
And after reading the book, are the Presbyterians going to be upset with you? Some of them might be, although I have a good review by from Presbyterian News Service. Also have a good Kirkus review. I feel good about that. And a, a number of friends here in this rather sophisticated retirement community in Durham, the Forest of Duke, have read it, and uh, they seem to like it. So that makes me feel good. Tell me about the review you got. What did they say about your writing? Well, let's see. Kirk, I'll give you a little sample. Uh, At the start of Barlow's novel, Robert Statton is an elderly man, but the main text recounts his memories of being a young pastor in an Alabama church during the 1950s. His trip down memory lane begins with Bill Edwards, a Presbyterian elder from Birmingham, and several other committee members visit him in Rochester, New York, to assess whether they should offer him the position of their new pastor. Robert gets the position, and the narrative continues with a collection of tales that provide a picture of what life was like as a socially progressive pastor during, uh, for him during that era. Most stories are told from Robert's perspective. But a few snippets are in the form of letters and journal entries from Edwards and Robert's wife, Sally. There are occasional excerpts, those occasional excerpts from their narratives as a whole, seem more well-rounded and believable, and the episodes themselves cover a range of content. I mean, all these, even the narrative. I misread that. It's all very... Uh, complimentary. Some deal with issues experienced by members of the congregation. For instance, a teenage girl who secretly gets an abortion, and so forth. It goes on. And then the uh, Presbyterian News Service, which was almost a surprise to me. Um, Let me see if I can put my hand on that. Perhaps they didn't read it in in its entirety. It's entitled Based on True Stories. How do you involve the average reader in the philosophical discussion of, about religion? You just uh, use enough fictionalized stories. Make it an engaging story. That's just what James Stanley Barlow has done. And then she tells about the book, and she uh, does emphasize the, the discussions, the ongoing discussion between these two guys uh, Statton, Robert Statton, and his best friend, Charlie Brunson, the skeptic. And how long did it take you to put this book together? You have 332 oh, pages. <laughs> 332 pages. Uh, yeah, I, I worked on it from various... I like to write, so Is I've it... written a kind of memoir called Appalachia and Beyond. I was brought up in the East Tennessee Ma- Mountains area, and I have written some serious books like the the Fall into Consciousness was a, an essay on religion and psychology published by Fortress Press back in 73. And then I have a book of poems, Swimming Laps in August, and in my very unconventional memoir, Appalachian and Beyond, I, can, I have a lot of prose and some more poetry. I like to write, and uh, I like to write with about people. Well, this should be a charming read. I, I have a background in church-related activities as well as being an interviewer. At one point, I tried pastoring a church in a very small town, 
so I can relate to probably a lot of these stories. In fact, I bet you can. I bet I probably can. <laughs> if the Hallmark Channel were to read your book, would they pick up on anything that might be turned into a movie of the week? The Hallmark, well, it it does have some good drama in it. Um, there's one that's probably R-rated. I think that's a chapter called Flower Arrangement. Flower Arrangement. When the arrangement gets rather um, erotic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, <that's... laughs> the, and it goes right on in the church, and there are ramifications because, well, I won't tell you the story, but that's one. And, I, well, I think there are any number of them that could be plots for, well, soap opera, but better than, you know, some soap opera, and maybe a little better than that. Okay. Um, there's some really human interest stories. And there are young people who come, and they have all kinds of questions about religion and how it affects their lives. And they come from different perspectives, and they talk with the minister who tries to do his job as a counselor and friend. He considers him, by uh, job analysis almost, the friend of everyone in the parish. And he emphasizes soul care and feels he does that better than what he might call soul cure. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe this book to someone? Who do you think it would appeal to? Who's going to be interested in reading this? Well, anybody who wants to know or to exercise his thinking about place of organized religion in society, whether it should be sustained. I think our attitude toward religion has changed, is changing. There's a kind of an evolution going on, and I'm wanting the uh, tent to be big enough to include the skeptic. I mean, maybe the the quiet, reverent agnostic, someone who has questions. Why can't he ask them right in the church and not feel he has to be outside of the church? Uh, That's one of my concerns. And I feel the church should talk the language that the people are used to, which includes science and technology. Uh, it's a different culture from the culture you often feel that you're suddenly forced into when you go into a church and you hear a lot of what my skeptic Charlie Brunson calls God talk. Mm-hmm. Let's have some man talk here and have man talk perhaps about God, but uh, make it accessible to our everyday way of thinking. I think there's a, I think there's a with life. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people in society who would agree with that statement absolutely. Well, it's a real challenge. And was there a, another challenging part of uh, putting this book together? Well, how to do it and how to provide the narrative. At first I had a the had it in the third person and then I tried it in the first person. And then uh, I continued to do that. I have eventually it's first-person narrative. However, I wanted to share the narrative. So I have the minister delving into the diary notes of his wife and of his good friend, this elder, who's a hydraulics engineer in a steel plant in Birmingham. It's a southern steel town. It was in those days. And also, I deal... It's segregationist South, so I have the problem of all the issues related to segregation. I include in here an interview with Dr. Martin Luther King, 
which reflects one that I actually had within myself in Detroit in 1963, the year of the centennial of the proclamation, Emancipation Proclamation. Early in that summer, or late spring, I interviewed Dr. King, and then uh, pretty soon after the interview, we had that beautiful letter from the Birmingham jail published in the Christian Century. I uh, was a friend of Billy Graham's myself. I was in college with him. He drove me to the airport when I went into the service in 1943. A little older, he's about five or six years older than I, but I always liked him. He was a friend, but I, uh, my way of thinking is different, although I do appreciate him and his main thrust, but I have him in there in the narrative because he represents a position that is a kind of a pressure from what I might call the right on this minister who turns out to be a rather progressive one, one who has to take the label liberal sometimes in religious circles, and yet he wants to uphold and strengthen religion and believes in the religious dimension of our lives. So uh, it is. I think the book is pretty rich. <laughs> I go back and read it myself. <laughs> You're not prejudiced at all. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. this... Well, it's me. I wanted to get this down. I, I felt I've got something to say. Yeah. By golly, I'm going to say it. And I, I said it. Now, there, unfortunately, when I look at it, I run into a few typos. And I hope people will read through those typos. This story, what's the setting? When? What years? In the early 50s, however... The narrator is looking back to the 50s. I see. So you have the benefit of all that's happened since the 50s in the perspective given to it. At least that's what I'm trying to do. Some charming and intriguing titles, Church Basketball, Margie Perry, Dialogues with Charles, a lot of personal comments, I'm sure, in all those. individuals with very defined problems. The, the abortion picture, the uh, sexual orientation kind of problems that people want to talk to their minister about, and the way he handles those. I've got that in there because I think it's very important. Well, and they're based on facts. Thank you for sharing your information in this book. The title again is Pastor, A Fictional Reminiscence with Conversations on Religion and Society. Our guest today has been James Stanley Barlow, the author. Thank you, James, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's very good talking with you. Where can we get copies of your book? Well, you can get them at Amazon.com, and you can get them at Barnes & Noble, ordering them. Uh, I don't know that you'd find them in the Barnes & Noble bookstore, but you can get them online, and you can get them also from Author House through whom I published this book. Now, there are other bookstores. Anybody can order it for you. And it's in ebook form as well. That's very reasonable. I think it's about two ninety for an e-book if you have a Kindle or one of those things. Excellent. Buy the, buy the other books, too. I get a little more royalty from them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not making any money on this. I, I, oh, but I would love to have readership, feedback. 
I'm sure our our listeners will check your information out online. It's James Stanley Barlow. Yes, and you can read up to 48 pages, I think, if you go to Amazon.com, for instance. They'll let you open the book and read some of it. Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jay. For Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, she'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Swing Theory. And the author is Dr. Stacy Watt. And Dr. Watt joins us now on Author Talk. Welcome. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Greetings from Grand Island in New York. Well, this is The Swing Theory. Theory. This is kind of a unique kind of approach because we're dealing with that swing in the park in the backyard. What really is going on when you're on that swing? What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Well, we're going to talk about that because you say the swing theory is the book that focuses your dreams, utilizing your own environment and available resources to push you on your way towards success. Of course, it's goal-setting, personal and emotional and professional development. And we're going to talk about this unique view from a woman who has really, I guess, proven that you can pull yourself up, if you will, by your own bootstraps and make things happen. And, and you've had an incredible, interesting <laughs> uh, career uh, during college, even before college. And then, of course, college, you'll tell us about your success there and the sports field, and, and of course, becoming a doctor, and all the things that you're doing. So welcome, Dr. Watt, and give us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to speak to everyone today. Well, the swing theory came out of my daughters and wanting to teach them about how their mother came to be, to who she is. So throughout my life, I have been blessed with having a group of individuals here and there along my path of life that helped me along through mentorship, through coaching, getting me to the next step or the next path, you know, leading me along to be a success in life, in the business world, in medicine, in life itself. There's been some outstanding people out there. And the swing theory is written, and it is based upon literally a swing. And that great feeling that you have, that amazing sense of accomplishment when you learn how to get out there and 
push back and forth, learn it on your own, start generating some speed and some height. And if you ever watch a kid out there and that feeling of wonder when they're first starting out and how that transforms into that amazing joy of success and how they can feel that they've conquered something and, and the feeling of pride that comes forward. And then all of a sudden they want to do more. They want to go out and they want to suddenly succeed at other things and maybe go on to a bigger swing and they want to conquer the world. Well, that's what I want to take, take my readers to go forward. Some of the people out there that are listening have been through a lot of tough times or are struggling currently or they're, they're having that feeling or have been told like I have throughout my life that they can't do something that maybe it's beyond their skill scope, it's beyond their ability, they're not good enough, they're not smart enough, they're not strong enough. Well, I'm here to tell them that they're absolutely wrong, that people that are telling them that are, are totally off base. You have to believe in yourself, and you have to go forward with such drive and passion to not only prove them wrong, but prove yourself right. Believe in yourself and your dreams and your abilities and your skills and your strengths and everything that goes with it. And maybe the person out there that's listening doesn't have a person, a cheerleader, a mentor, a coach that's, that's reinforcing how good they are. Well, I want to be that voice. I want them to read the book, The Swing Theory, and I want them to go forward and, and know that I'm behind them 100% that they can learn from all the things that I've come to know throughout my life about that there's struggles out there, that they can get by them, they can utilize their friends, they can utilize coaching, they can utilize you know, their teachers out there, they can utilize so many people out there that are just waiting to turn around and help you up to that next plateau in your life, to that next big thing, that next great idea, the next job, the next anything you can dream of. So I'm one of those people out there that is reaching back. I've had great success. I have come from behind in sporting events. I've put myself through medical school. I've done all these things. And if you would have told me when I was in middle school that I would be where I am today, a board-certified pediatric anesthesiologist, a program director, a two-time NCAA All-American, a wife, a mom of two wonderful little kids, who, by the way, are the, the cover of the book on the swing theory, are my two daughters. And you would have told me I would have had all these things in my life and I would be as successful as I am today. I would have told you there's no way. There's absolutely no way that I would be where I am today. Well, obviously, I was wrong. And thankfully, I was wrong and that I didn't stop believing Again, people will tell you you can't do things. That does not mean you have to listen. You can go forward. You can do amazing things in your life. And I'd love to be a part of it. I think it's important, too, from just getting to know you a little bit, that coach, the coach, uh, is so important in a person's life. And you had a coach in your life, started out with your dad, which obviously must must have laid the foundations of uh, a, a lot of of feelings within you, but but having a coach is really critical, especially today. Oh, today it is more important than ever. I mean, time and talent are the absolute number one resources we have to offer. Not only people, but, you know, offer ourselves is our time and our talents. And those are the two things that a coach can give you. They can offer their time and to bring you forward and, and teach you things. And, it, again, coaching is not just about 
in my situation, throwing a discus farther. It's about how to deal with failure, how to train for success, how to keep going, how to focus your energies. There's so much there that a coach does. And also a coach, you know, gives you time. They, they invest in you. And I have been blessed to have my father as my, my first coach, if you will. He, he, was, he wasn't exactly a, an athlete per se, but he was an amazing, amazing guy that, that actually has been, you know, a very strong force within my life and continues to be even though he has passed on. And then I had gone on to my high school coaches who actually weren't even in my school district. They were coaches that my father and I reached out for when I needed some assistance in learning how to go further. They came forward and said, I'll coach you on their own time, their their own ticket. So after my practice was done in shot put and discus, I'd actually drive over and train for the evening until late in the evening um, to learn the shot put and discus from those two individuals. And they were Coach Garnum and Coach Wyatt from Sweet Home High School. And they didn't have to go forward and spend their time and energy, but they did. They invested in someone. And I am so thankful I met them because they taught me so much more than what was on the athletic field. So let's talk about some of these principles in your book. I'm looking at your uh, table of contents. At least I had it. Uh, Here it is. Uh, We're talking about, again, with the swing uh, analogy, getting a push. Uh, that, That is so critical when we're first starting out. Yes, when you're first starting out and... You're learning how to navigate and get yourself moving on the swing. That becomes sort of that try to build momentum. And the hardest part of getting an object going is getting it started. Well, getting a push means just getting out there and trying to get some help from from other people, whether it be coaches, mentors, teachers, family, um, other people out there in the community or even on the Internet that have that have gone out and done what you want to do. So if you want to go out there and become the very best salesman in, in car salesman ever, then there's probably someone out there that can help you. Not only maybe in, in how to approach customers, but how to go out and learn more about the vehicle you're selling or anything else. So there's a lot of information out there, and it's trying to find that right individual that will help you along that path. And... Again, it is all about starting the momentum, and it all starts with you taking that first step forward and getting on the swing. Get on the swing and say, I'm ready. Let's go. I I have a purpose. I have a focus. And again, a lot of people get out there and they say, I want to do something. I want to be X out there. I want to be the very best discus thrower in the country. And they have no idea how to plan and get that route together and how to come up with a a vision or journey on how to create that path. So the first step is getting a push and finding someone that will help you create the path to get there because then you have now a stepwise progression of how to get there. And then you're going to find people along that way that are going to go and take you to the next step and then the next step. So again, starting the momentum is the biggest part. It is the thing that you have to spend your most time on is finding that really good person to get you along your way. And... It is so important to do. 
And of course, when we first get on that swing, we can't do very much. We don't know how to do it. We get that push, and then we learn how to pump the swing. We, and as you put it, pump yourself up. And, you know, you have to do it because I heard someone say, well, uh, I just need to be motivated. And the person said, well, what if somebody doesn't come along to motivate you? You know, we've got to motivate ourselves, don't we? We do. We do. You have to keep, not only in that initial part, because everyone gets excited when they start something off. It's like that initial rush of energy and adrenaline of, wow, this is a new adventure and it's exciting. And they, they really give it a good go. And then also they realize it's hard sometimes. And it takes energy. It takes dedication. It takes that, that passion to keep you going. And it comes from within. It comes from that fire that burns inside you. And it burns in everyone. We might not feel it sometimes, and it might be on low at times, but it's there. And you have to tap into it. You have to tap into that energy, that fire, that ability to, to bust through adversity, to get through obstacles. That's all within us, and we have to be able to tap into it. And it's, sometimes it's hard. But if we keep on going, we keep finding the drive, even when it gets hard, we're going to get through that bumpy part, and all of a sudden it's going to get easier again. And then we're going to succeed and even probably outreach what we thought we could do. Because if you can learn how to tap into your own resources, your own energy, your own passion, it's, it's the sky's the limit. You're going to go places. You're going to succeed. What if we fall off the swing, as is in your chapter six, you talk about that. What happens if we fall, and a lot of, you know, when you're first starting to swing, sometimes you fall off. It hurts. Oh, we, we fall off, and I have more bruises and bangs than you can count from times where I've gone head first and gone to tackle things that, you know, I put myself out there for, and I, I didn't make it. I fell short. But you know what? You get off. You get up, you dust yourself off, and you get back on. If you see kids in a swing set, and, and this is a great example, you know, my daughter is a kamikaze pilot, if you will. She will go after things at 100 miles an hour. She'll run up there and she'll go on the swing. And the first time she fell off, the look of horror was amazing on her face. She never thought that she would fall. And it took her a while. She, she went around, she, she looked at it from different angles, tried to figure out what exactly had happened. And um, eventually, she, you could see the courage start to come back. And it was a little bit hard for her at first to, to get back on the swing. She was very afraid to fall off again. But all of a sudden, she, I think she realized that, you know what, I, you fall. It's life. You fall and you get back up. And maybe you were meant to fall at that time. Maybe you were meant to take a different path. Maybe something along the way is, is guiding you in a different direction. It's all part of a great journey and a great ride. It's called life. And if you, if you let it hurt you and you let it stop you, then that's, that's such a shame. It, it's so bad to see when I see people fall off. They, they really put themselves out there and it doesn't work out. Well, you know what? Get up. Get up and learn from what happened and move forward. Because now you have something someone else doesn't have. You have experience. You have now experience in what didn't work. And now you know also what it takes to get back up again. And that's an even greater gift to yourself is you were able to get up from, get up from something that didn't work out and you went forward and went on. 
and again, that's a great showing of faith in yourself. It's a great showing of the inner passion inside and that you could do this. This is very capable. You can reach out, achieve your dreams and goals. It's, it's a great thing to have. Why is it so important, as you put it in Chapter 9, to push someone else? And we need to finish on that. For, we just have some limited time. But share with us about pushing someone else. This is my favorite part. And the reason being is I've had some great people, as I've said, that have helped me along my path. And I, ever since I've met these people, I thought, I'm going to someday pay it forward. I'm going to turn around, and when I become a success, I'm going to help others through those tough patches in their lives or help someone even become greater than I am. That's my goal, is help someone else. Mentor, coach, teach. Do something. It will help not only them achieve more, it will help you. It will help you develop more as a person. It will help your community. It will help those around you. It will help your family. It helps so many things. It makes you feel good, and it is good for you too. You can also then coach. If you're going to go out there and you want to be a great business person, coach your successor. Get out there and make a difference. Make a positive impact. It is so important to who we are as people. And right now, with everything going on in the world, I think a lot of people could use help. And why not be that positive force in the world instead of just trudging along, putting the blinders on, and caring only about yourself? Because there's a lot of amazing people out there that have a lot of time and a lot of talent. And use it, invest it in those around you, and you'll be amazing at the change you can see in the world, all from your abilities and skills. We've been listening to Dr. Stacy Watt. She's the author of her book, The Swing Theory. Dr. Watt, tell us how to get your book. You can go out and purchase it through Amazon. If you type in The Swing Theory, don't forget the the, because if you put Swing Theory in, you're going to get some books about golf. And you can also <laughs> purchase it through Barnes & Noble or directly through Author House. Again, type in those websites, the Barnes & Noble or Author House, and type in The Swing Theory or my name, Stacy Watt, and you'll get right there to the page that you need to purchase the book. And again, I look forward to talking with all of you through my book. You can hear my voice, and I look forward to sharing my insights and my stories with all of you. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. All right. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 